Hello there and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. Here's what's coming up on this edition. We start out with an emphasis on the significance of the Incarnation, with comments from Andreas Kostenberger of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and the ministry called Biblical Foundations, examining the wonderful story of God coming in the flesh. Plus, writer Becky Baudouin observed as her mother was diagnosed with cancer several years ago, just before the holidays. In her recent book release, she tells the unique story of watching her mother's final days. She offers encouragement for those that have experienced loss and may be facing their first Christmas without a loved one. Then some insight into being spiritually fit, in addition to fitness in other areas, from a man who, at age 61, set the NCAA record for oldest football player and oldest to score a point. Tom Thompson is coming up. And on this edition of The Intersection, you'll meet Joyce Smith. Her son John fell through the ice at a lake and was pronounced dead for around 60 minutes. But he made a full recovery. You'll hear about aspects of that amazing story as told by Joyce, as well as Pastor Jason Noble. Finally, with analysis of the case involving a Colorado cake baker who declined to provide a cake for a gay wedding celebration, as well as oral arguments which were heard recently by the U.S. Supreme Court, some commentary from Travis Weber of the Family Research Council. This is the intersection of production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Andreas Kostenberger serves as Senior Research Professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in North Carolina. He's a co-author of the book, The First Days of Jesus, The Story of the Incarnation. He's also the founder of the ministry called Biblical Foundations. In our recent conversation, he discussed the biblical passages dealing with Christ's birth and offered some insight into the significance of Jesus, the Son of God, coming to earth in the flesh. Here now is Andreas Kostenberger. You know, every Christmas uh, I'm reminded, uh, you know, uh, we're surrounded with with the culture where uh, it's sometimes hard to separate fact from fiction. And uh, I think the the beauty about our faith is it is a historical faith, that Christianity is a historical religion. And so it's, you know, the gospel, it's not just a a set of truths that we affirm, but it's it's a, it's 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 based on a person, on the Lord Jesus Christ, and on on certain historical events. We believe that he historically uh, was born by a virgin, and that historically uh, he ministered and walked the earth for three and a half years, and that historically he he was crucified, and historically he rose from the dead on the third day. And so, uh, our faith is is resting and grounded in 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 those. Uh, very, very significant historical events. And so what a great opportunity that that in our culture we have the opportunity to reflect on what that means uh, every single year. Well, something that I've been concentrating on the air here over the past couple of weeks is the fulfillment of prophecy. And I want to zero in yeah. on one of those prophecies found in the book of Isaiah that Jesus would be born of a virgin. Now, there has been debate. One can go online and find where theologians are saying, well, perhaps Jesus was not born of a virgin, or the virgin birth isn't important. So address that, if you would. Why is that such an important element of our Christian faith? Well, it's absolutely essential to, to understand, and yet it is a mystery, you know, when you reflect on it. Uh, what a miracle uh, for for God, the Holy Spirit, uh, as the Bible says, to overshadow uh, 
marry and 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 to conceive a child in in her womb and uh so you have uh literally God being the father of Jesus and yet Jesus being fully God and fully man uh the word become flesh it's uh it's miraculous and uh yet it is it is real and uh it's something that is essential to the christian faith and so uh christmas really is uh the time when we really reflect on on the miracle of god becoming man in the lord jesus christ well and when you think about god becoming man he was born of a woman born of a virgin but yet he retained those god god characteristics if you will Absolutely. and so that was such a that was such an important part because without the divine element mm-hmm. Jesus doesn't fulfill the uh the call that God has uh, has called him to do coming in the flesh so it is a, an incredible uh connection between God and man it was necessary for for Christ to purchase uh redemption for us Absolutely. I think uh, you're right. In that sense, you know, uh, uh, we see how the virgin birth is is so vital to uh, the end of a story, the crucifixion and the resurrection, because as you mentioned, uh, if Christ was not fully God, he could not uh, die in the, uh, effectively uh, on the cross uh, to atone for our sins. And if he was not fully man, again, he was not would not have been able to identify uh, with us. As, as in the book of Romans, uh, we read, Read that that Christ came in the likeness of of, of sinful flesh, and so uh, you know if we keep it all together, we understand that that the the, the virgin birth and and the cross and the re- resurrection all come together, and that's why it's so vital to defend the historicity of the virgin birth. Andreas Kostenberger here on the intersection. Learn more through the website, biblicalfoundations.org. The intersection continues now with Becky Bodwin. In a recent conversation with me, she described her observations about the death of her mother and its effect and provided encouragement for the aftermath of the death of a loved one. She's author of the book, Cancer, Faith, and Unexpected Joy, What My Mother Taught Me About How to Live and How to Die. Here now is Becky Bodwin. When we received the news, the... um we we were I, I was actually on speakerphone. I wasn't with her and um Dr. Crocker was his name and he, you know, gave us this very bleak news and did not give us any hope for um her to come through through this illness and survive. But he asked my mom if she was a person of faith and when as soon as he asked that she said, Oh yes, I'm a person of great faith. I believe in the power of prayer and um, he said, well, you know, if you read even a little bit of the Bible, you'll see that God tells us that we will have trouble in this world, but he promises that he will walk with us, that he will never leave us, and he tells us over and over again not to be afraid. And we have the promise of heaven after this life is over. And that was such a gift to us, and I feel like that kind of set the tone for my mom. It kind of helped to set the tone for her as she walked this journey. Um, she was a very strong Christian in my whole life growing up, and she did have a lot of faith and believed in the power of prayer. We were all praying that she would be healed. But I really saw her uh, her faith grow deeper as she progressed through her illness. And at one point she said, 
you know, Becky, I'm in a win-win situation here. That's the way I see it. If I if I am healed, I win more time with my family. And if I die, then I win eternity with my Savior. So either way, mm-hmm. I win. And as hard as it is to hold both of those possibilities up to God and say, we so desperately want you to heal, we so desperately want this not to be the way things turn out, to be able to hold up the other outcome that we don't want and say, God, we trust you, and either way here, we win because you are in control. Um, that was amazing to watch her grow so deep in her faith in that way, and that's exactly what she did. Tell me about that first Christmas without your mom. Oh, it was so hard. It was so hard. My mom loved Christmas, so everything about the holiday just reminded me of her everywhere I went, the lights, the decorations, the music, the food, and the Christmas cookies, all of it. So um, one of the things I learned in the grief group that I was a part of is to come up with a plan. You know, it can be very easy when you're when you're going through a season of grief or you feel depressed to just say, I, I, I don't know what I'm going to want to do. It's going to be awful no matter what I do. And it will be hard. And, and we need to expect that it will be hard. But if we can spend some time thinking about what do I really want these days to look like? Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. Who do I want to spend the holiday with? Do we want to stay home? Do we want to go someplace and do something totally different? What traditions do we want to hold on to? And what traditions do we need to just kind of set aside because it's too painful to do those same things again? And to be honest and come up with a plan and take a lot of things off your list that you don't have to do. The first year I didn't send out Christmas cards because it was too overwhelming. I just sent a handful of cards, personal notes to people that had walked the journey with me and knew what I was going through. And I did very limited baking and I did a lot of shopping online. I stayed home and watched Hallmark movies a lot. And just, it was a very different kind of Christmas. It was very sad. But coming up with a plan, I think, is really, really important. And inviting other people into that holiday with you that can walk with you and understand that you may need time to yourself, you know, and that um, that it's going to be hard. But also to expect God to comfort you and to get you through it, because you will get through it, and it will get better. The next Christmas might also be hard. Sometimes people say the second Christmas feels harder than the first one, um, but eventually things will start to feel better. So I just want to encourage people to to... to come up with some sort of a plan and to walk with other people and to not be alone throughout the entire holiday. Becky Bodwin here on The Intersection. Her website address is Becky Bodwin. That's B-A-U-D-O-U-I-N dot com. This is The Intersection podcast with Tom Thompson. He holds the NCAA record for oldest football player and oldest player to score a point. He spoke with me recently and shared some of his life story as well as how his faith is integrated into his life and material related to the book, Get a Kick Out of Life, Expect the Best of Your Body, Mind, and Soul at Any Age. This is Tom Thompson now. Faith actually drives everything I do, Um, and it is the the way it works with the the fitness side is uh, the original Greek word for fit is useful. And it has nothing really to do with how you look. It has to do more with, you know, how how useful you are, not just to yourself, but to others. And and that's the point of, of fitness for me is that by being fit, I'm able to do more for other people. And um, I've also done some um, 
some writings, nothing published yet, but I believe there's a link between physical fitness and spiritual fitness. And let me paint a picture there, if I may. Um, in the military, they have fitness protocols from a basic recruit all the way to the elite forces. And the difference is um, in terms of the protocol really, frankly, has to do with the mission that um, the soldier has. Well, you and I both would agree that we know that we're in a spiritual war. And uh, the, I, the whole idea of uh, physical protocol in the military isn't so they can dodge bullets and run and jump into foxholes quickly. It's to handle the stress of battle. And so in my mind, um, uh, physical fitness is connected in many ways to the purpose God has for our life. Tom, you've co-written this book called Get a Kick Out of Life. Expect the best of your body, mind, and soul at any age. You have the body, obviously. You have mm-hmm. the mind and the soul. So you're you're talking about really three different areas of fitness, if you will. Talk about some of the concepts that you actually lay out for readers in this particular book. Well, one of the things that when we talk about, let's say, for example, the mind, and I'll just ask you the question. Do you know anybody that wants to change their life? Sure. Okay. But you know what? They're not willing to change how they think. Mm. And that's the first step is you've got, with anything, you've got to be able to change the way you think. And part of the, or one of the ways you can do that is that you uh, maintain teachability. And teachability is something that can benefit a young person as well as an old person. Uh, It it allows you to be uh, relevant in whatever situation you're in. And with... uh, when, with the mind, uh, this isn't necessarily in the book, but it's just something that I believe. Um, it's Our brain is the closest uh, physical attribute that we have that's like God's. Because, I mean, he knew the thoughts he had for us, etc. So he has a way of thinking about us. And we, in turn, are able to think about him. And it also allows us to be able to discover our, our purpose along the journey of life, if you will, by thinking like God. We, you know, know that uh, we're always seeking to get the mind of Christ. So you've got the, the mind piece, the body uh, that I just got to explaining uh, a moment ago, and then you've got the soul, which is the content of our life. And a lot of that is just again, gets back to how we think about people. And I've found that if we're more concerned about what we give than what we get, we end up getting far more than we ever could have gotten on our own. And by just dealing with the relational side of life with family and friends and even people that we don't get along with, and of course God talks about we got to love everybody, then that's going to allow us to have a much more rich soul. 
So I'm kind of condensing all that uh, for the sake of time, but that's a lot of what we're talking about. And then plus, you're everybody's scattered around doing a whole bunch of different things, trying to keep the plate spinning. But if you only look at three areas of your life and you're only looking at to enhance those areas, everything else gets covered. That was Tom Thompson here on The Intersection. You can find out more by going to the website 91kick91kick.com. This is The Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can learn more through the website, meetinghouseonline.info. You'll find a link to the Media Center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on The Intersection Podcast. Also, through that homepage, you can subscribe to The Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast-receiving software, including iTunes, on a weekly basis. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance, to the Christian community. The other is the front room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can also get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. The Intersection Podcast is also accessible through the Faith Radio app. You can find out more information about downloading it through the website faithradio.org. Well, I had a chance recently to speak with Joyce Smith. Her teenage son, John, fell through the ice on a frozen lake, and he was declared to be dead around 60 minutes. He's made a full recovery. She was joined by family pastor Jason Noble of First Assembly Church of St. Peter's, Missouri, to discuss the experience and some principles that can be learned from their story. Joyce is the author of the book, The Impossible, the miraculous story of a mother's faith in her child's resurrection. Here now are Joyce Smith and Jason Noble. He had spent the night with some friends, and so I was waiting for a telephone call from them as to when I was supposed to pick John up. And so when I got the telephone call, I was expecting it, but not what was going to be, you know, presented to me at that point in time. And uh, it was the uh, one of the young man's mothers that John had spent the night with, and she told me that there had been an accident, and I thought she meant a car accident. But she said no, that the boys had been on the lake, and they had fallen through the ice, and they had just pulled John out of the water, and he didn't have a heartbeat. So, you know, that's every parent's nightmare call. And so, you know, at that point in time, it just becomes surreal to you, and you're trying to pull your thoughts together, and your body doesn't want to move the way you want it to. And, you know, it's, it's just kind of a shock moment, um, trying to get ready to, to go you know, to see your son. And at that time, I thought I was going to the lake, but they uh, took him to the hospital, so I left to go and see him at the hospital. Mm. My conversation with God in the car was very loud. I wanted to make sure that he was listening to what I was saying. Uh, we had prayed for John for 17 years uh, until before we were able to adopt him. I, I mean, that was how long we'd want to, you know, ask God for a child. And so I just knew in my heart and mind that God was not going to take my son away from me. He, he, it was just that assurance I had that God wasn't going to do that, that he was going to answer my prayer and and he was going to restore John's heartbeat. I never had a doubt about that. And I'm not saying that with arrogance. I'm saying that with, it was just an assurance that I just had down deep in my heart that God was just not going to take John away from us. And I didn't know how he was going to work it out, but I just knew that he was. Uh, we'd been doing a Bible study in church called Believing God by Beth Moore. 
And in it, we each day we would say these things. We would say, I believe God is who he says he is. I believe God can do what he says he can do. And I'm believing God. And so that's where my heart and my mind was, that nothing was impossible with God. And that, you know, God raised from the dead. We see that in scripture a lot. And that, you know, if he could do it for them, there's no reason why he couldn't do it for John. So it was just that assurance that I had. Again, I'm not being arrogant or oversimplifying this. It's just what was in my heart. Was I, was I, upset isn't the word. Okay, was I kind of, you know, as every mother's heart would be, (laughs) you know, you're wanting to know when this is going to happen, how it's going to happen, you know, God's going to do it. But it was still that moment of, you know, being desperate with God. God, I'm here and, and I'm, I'm not going away. I, this is what I'm asking for you. The Bible says, asking you shall receive. And so that's where I was with God at that point in time, that this is what I was asking. And I was standing and expecting, you know, not arrogantly expecting. I was expecting God to do show his character of who he was right. and, and that, you know, he'll do these things because he loves us. You know, I want to encourage people to believe for the impossible. Um, you know, you can never do you, a miracle is not about an equation or anything like that, but I think you can put yourself in a position to be ready to receive a miracle. And one of the things that was so great that Joyce talked about a little earlier was she spent so much time in God's word, learning his promises, finding out what God's promises had to say that when the rubber hit the road, she knew what God's word said about believing for miracles and believing for the impossible. And, I think that as you look at that, I believe that a miracle can happen at any moment. And so when you get into a situation that seems impossible, you know, you can trust God. You can trust his word. You can trust what he has to say. You know, I think another takeaway is we really saw the power of life and death is in the tongue. Uh, yeah. Scripture tells us, and we can speak life over situations. I think if we would have spoke death, it would have been a completely different outcome. Uh, but where we were speaking life, we were speaking God's promises over John, um, you saw an incredible miracle happen. And I think as a takeaway, no matter what you see, we have to go by what we know, not what we see, and speak life over every situation that we face. Jason Noble and Joy Smith here on The Intersection. You can find out more about the story by going to theimpossiblebook.com. Well, this is The Intersection with Travis Weber, Director of the Center for Religious Liberty at the Family Research Council. He discussed with me recently the oral arguments before the U.S. Supreme Court in the case of a Colorado baker who declined to provide a cake celebrating a gay wedding ceremony. He was on hand at the high court and shared his observations. From that conversation, this is Travis Weber. There was a lot of focus on free speech going into the arguments. Everyone, I think, thought that would be the basis on which the court would rule. But surprisingly, at the arguments, the justices really focused on the free exercise portion of the claim. And especially Justice Kennedy, focusing on how the state commissioners exhibited bias in their comments toward Jack, uh, and the state was intolerant of Jack's religious belief while being tolerant of the other view that would approve of same-sex marriage. And so, uh, you know, surprisingly, there was a lot of focus on the free exercise portion of the of the argument, the free exercise claim. But if Jack convinces the court that free exercise or free speech is sufficient here, he will prevail in the case. So when, when the arguments began, uh, Kristen Wagner was peppered with questions from justices skeptical of Jack's argument, and I was feeling pretty pessimistic just because she was really being hounded with a lot of questions. But 
um, as the arguments went on and, and the other side stepped up to argue, those questions continued from justices skeptical of the state's argument and probably were more, more so. I think more justices were more skeptical of the state's argument than, than of Jack's. And that really, you know, I think caused uh, uh, me and many others observing the arguments to, to really, um, uh, you know, we, we grew more encouraged. And by the end of the argument, I think the general consensus, and this is the way I felt, was that things looked pretty promising for Jack. Um, uh, you know, the, the early on, the justices struggled with, well, you know, what is speech, what is uh, artistic expression that's protected under the speech claim? If you protect Jack, you need to protect a, a chef, a florist, a photographer, etc. cetera. Uh, and this is a question the court has kind of raised for itself by ruling in the Obergefell case for same-sex marriage. It knows all these religious liberty issues are on the table. But as arguments continued and, and they focused on the free exercise claims, um, you know, the justices exhibited clear, uh, uh, you know, discomfort with the way the state had treated Jack in terms of uh, lower court commissioners calling his views despicable, Kennedy uh, claiming the state, lecturing the state on tolerance and forcing the, asking the state attorney to disavow those statements, and other justices raising problematic hypotheticals for where the court finds itself. Justice Roberts saying, well, if you have a pro bono legal services provider, the state's theory would force that provider to compromise its belief on same-sex marriage. Alito saying the same for religious schools. And the state and the ACLU basically admitting their legal position in this case would force all those entities and people to violate their religious beliefs on same-sex marriage. And I think, and even speak a message against their beliefs. Uh, even Justice Ginsburg, who was skeptical at one point. And so th th things are really, I think, feeling pretty promising for Jack Phillips at this point. We look at Kennedy, his performance in the courtroom. What did you see? Yeah, um, I saw indications that make me generally hopeful. Um, you know, but in, in terms of breaking that down, um, as you pointed out, that um, there was a passage in Obergefell that uh, noted religious people um, are good and honorable in their beliefs, and those who hold such beliefs uh, should be respected. Uh, Justice Kennedy is aware of that passage being there, but more broadly in terms of religious freedom law, you know, for all the, the, the disagreement I have with his rulings on abortion and gay rights, he always casts them in terms of protecting the individual right as he sees it. And if that is consistently applied to this case, it'll come down on the side of Jack Phillips. And Kennedy, you know, beyond the free speech support that he seems to uh, generally, that the position he takes in support of free speech, he was very skeptical of the imposition and violation of Jack Phillips' religious freedom in this case. At one point, questioning a, uh, or lecturing the state attorney, saying uh, tolerance is essential in a free society, and uh, it's most meaningful when it's mutual. It seems to me that the state in its position here has been neither tolerant nor respectful of Mr. Phillips' religious beliefs. At another point, expressing concern that Jack Phillips would be forced to teach his family that the state believes his beliefs are discriminatory, uh, Kennedy really expressing problems with the state's heavy-handed approach here. And when the ACLU tried to argue that Jack was really discriminating against gay people by refusing to create the message they wanted, Kennedy called that distinction quite facile. You know, and so Kennedy, in his skepticism here, was pretty clear, uh, this is good. It bodes well uh, for a ruling for Jack Phillips. Travis Weber here on The Intersection. The Family Research Council website is frc.org. Well, we are nearing the end of this edition of The Intersection podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House. The website address is meetinghouseonline.info. 
there you'll find a link to the media center through which you can listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection podcast. Also through that homepage, you can subscribe to the Intersection and have it delivered to your podcast receiving software, including iTunes on a weekly basis. Two blogs are accessible. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page, and you can get connected to video content. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.